0: What's
1: home mean to you? Home to me means uh, wherever my loved ones are. That definition obviously has changed over time.
0: Meet Usonda. Rome School is tackling the idea of home in the next couple short episodes. On a recent Rome, we found some people with really different concepts of what home is. Take this guy. We met under strange circumstances, but around music. And I'm not going to spoil it. But let's let his story unfold, because I know it'll be worth hearing. Usonda is 33, but he has the story of a much older man. He was born in Zambia, a small country in Africa, in case your
1: geography is bad. Is Zambia a poor country? I'm not poor like you live in a hut, because that's the perception that most people have of Africa is, you know, people are living in these grass thatched houses and stuff like that. And a good amount of my family does live that way. When I was still growing up, and we'd go to visit Grandpa, it would be in a little grass thatched house, and you know their primary source of income is farming. Was it fun going to visit your grandma's and Grandpa's house? It was. was, It was awesome for me to get to go there. We wake up in the morning. We're gonna go run around. It's just open savanna grassland. You don't have the confines of the city. You get to sit by the fire every night. You get to tell stories. Grandpa was really good about telling stories. I'm the fifth born of seven kids. Born in a little one bedroom house in the city, Ndola. Ndola? Mm -hmm. N-D-O-L-A? N-D-O-L-A. And this town is right on the border of Zambia and the Congo, which is a year, big issues. Which occasionally spilled over into my town. People are running away from what's going on. Refugees on foot? On foot. Wow. Walking right into a town. We had to house people like that. You took them in? Yeah, we housed people even from as far as Rwanda, Burundi when Rwanda happened wow. back then because Rwanda is up there next to Congo. So the people walked all the way from Rwanda, got into Congo. Well, Congo wasn't good enough, they walked all the way down Wow, into Zambia. they live with you for a while? There's a couple that my mom and dad took in for four or five months, helping them. A couple that was a Hutu and a Tutsi. They didn't know each other. They met each other in the bush, running away from the strife that was going on. And they became engaged and got married in the bush after traveling for months, walking on foot, because they thought they were gonna die. When you say bush, what exactly do you mean? Bush
0: is not exactly the wilderness, but not the town and not the city. So these people that got married, were they got married in the middle of nowhere.
1: What are Hutus and Tushies?
0: They are usually aren't known for liking each other very much, and they were refugees from the Civil War there. 800 miles to the north in Rwanda, but they found a home together out in the bush... They decided to get married.
1: Oh, so you live in a town out in the bush. Like, what was your life like? Did they have regular schools? So amazingly, I actually went to private school my whole life. How did your parents swing that? When I was very little, I was asthmatic. I had bronchitis, and I was allergic to everything. There came a situation. You know, we were still poor, living in houses with you no know, electricity. People are sleeping on the kitchen floor, in the hallway, mm-hmm. in the living room. Like, that's our living situation. You have a few clothes, you have a few pairs of shoes, if that, a few pairs of shoes among the whole the group kids. of you. Yes, yeah. Wow. So it wasn't like a situation where, oh, you got your own pair. Wow. No, you, you, you and your yeah. brother have a pair of shoes here that you can it's share. Not a lot. Wow. But there was a group of people that um, came from India that were devotees of a guru, a guy called Satya Sai Baba, Satya Sai Baba. Mm -hmm. They came from India to found a private school. They were told to found a private school by Satya Sai Baba, this guru, to found a school in a very poor neighborhood. So they came and started a school in our neighborhood. They had a nurse and they have all this other stuff that a regular public school would not have. The one big thing that came out of that was I became a devotee of the guy that had founded the school, Satya Sai Baba. He was the biggest guru in India, and I, I learned all the, a lot of bhajans and you know mantras and stuff like that, things that are part of the Hindu faith. Um, it was very unusual in Africa growing up and being a guy that knows all these bhajans and as a kid being in a place like that. Did you, did you dress in robes or anything like we that? We did. We did for school, yeah. Wow. Yeah, we wore some of that. Uh, this school was really great because it was taking in people that were, like, the poorest kids, putting them through an education that they normally wouldn't receive. And because of how poor we were, we were very appreciative of it, and yeah. we worked hard. In sixth grade, we got a chance to go see Sai Baba in India. Uh, this is 1997. I was in sixth grade, man. Wow. I hope that makes you feel old. Yeah, I was in a touring van <laughs> hating my life. <laughs> I was in sixth grade, man. I was in India. We went for three weeks to go find Amit Sai Baba. So we get there, big ashram, a lot of Westerners, uh, the first person in my family to ever travel out of the country, first person to get on a plane, which, by the way, in Africa is a huge, huge thing to be able to ride on a plane. Like, you got on a plane, like, my whole neighborhood knows. Yeah, he he got on a plane. Wow. <laughs> How about that, yeah. It's big.
0: There he was at the ashram. Robes and rituals. What's the ashram? It's, it's sort of like a giant mansion or a village, but a place where people come from all over the world to worship and to celebrate this guru and certain teachings of the Hindu religion uh, and done to great excesses. There was people lining up to kiss the feet uh, of this man and this man would regurgitate golden stones from his mouth and produce them in his hand. He had a whole sort of magic show that he did that was part of his um, (laughs) part of his embodiment of God. Um, So People would sing songs, thousands of people together at the ashram, and wait all day long for the chance for some face time with the
1: Baba. Of course, now it looks ridiculous. I'm like, what the hell was I doing? You know, so he took our team from Zambia, our students, take us back, and we'll talk there, he'll ask us stuff, and then he spoke in our language. Mm which solidified everything I'd thought about him in terms of like, this guy is God, God incarnate. Because how, he's an Indian guy. How could he learn? How could he be speaking my language? What's their language called? Bemba. There's seven major languages in Zambia and I'm saying seven distinctly different languages. A lot of
0: different dialects also.
1: Yeah, that are attached to those seven major ones. And so this guy spoke something in Bemba. Looking back, he could have just read something. And you know, and decide, but at the time, I was very impressionable. I was so impressed. I'm like, this guy is God. I went back to Zambia with just this like big thing of like, man, Sai Baba is God. I just met God. I'm in sixth grade.
0: You guys want to hear a little bit of Bemba, of what the language sounds like? Yeah, it sounds like
1: this. (laughs) Pretty, huh? What is he saying? He's
0: saying, You moved me from a bad place to a good place.
1: Is that the song that you guys recorded a few days ago at Sean's studio? Yep, that's him. That's Musonda. Cool. He's good
0: at singing. So, over the next few years, Musonda's family had some improvements in their life, and uh, his father pulled in tight with the local government. They worked hard,
1: and their condition was improving in Zambia. We had a bathroom inside, and we have electricity. Yeah, moving on. Oh, man, moving on up. But three years later, in 2000, we organized to go do another trip you know I was 15 and um, I can think for myself I could see what's going on I am like wow and it was impressive being there man it was very impressive but something was off having access to this man was very hard you're talking about an ashram that literally has 60 70,000 100,000 people living in that ashram
0: and so this time as a 15 year old he went back for nine months that's kind of a long time yeah it's long almost long enough to call it home this Baba was a really big deal the prime minister was one of his followers and all the leadership of India were following this guy and people came in from everywhere to watch him regurgitate the golden thing and and the Baba would capitalize on this and became richer and richer but he still kept living in these little sort of hermit's quarters on the ashram
1: he, he pretty much was like living exclusively by himself it was kind of recluse that kind of stayed in his little place that wasn't even much but it would come out and meet with everybody and then go right back to his thing so nothing about him looked like extravagant extravagant so you so what was
0: off what did you see when you were 15
1: I got abused by him It really changed my whole life. This this incident is a huge incident for me. One of the things we did there with part of the group of us that had gone there was we played drums, African drums, for a lot of events, culture events that were happening in the ashram. We'll go there and play drums. Right. So he invited us to do an interview with him. We went in to do the interview, and as we were doing that, he decided to call me back to a certain room because I was saying, my stomach, my stomach hurt. He calls me back to this room and he goes ahead and just does something that he wasn't supposed to do. I froze. I was young, you know. I'd grown up respecting and revering this man. So when that kind of thing happens, I I didn't know what to do. I walked out of there like something was off. That was not supposed to happen. That man was not supposed to touch me like that. It was shameful. It was shameful. Because he had all the power. Yeah, over your will
0: and your belief and your mind. Yeah. Your faith in him. Yeah, yeah. I
1: literally believe he was God incarnate, man. So and g- growing up in Africa, that belief was was really far from what we believe because African that, Africa mostly doesn't do cults. Like cults that have to do with actual life, people right. that are alive. African traditional religion is more about ancestors, spirits, ancestors. It's not going to be we are so enamored by this person that's alive and we're going to worship him
0: don't kiss anybody's
1: <laughs> feet <laughs> yeah we're doing, that. We ain't doing that so so this was very different for me to like have gone that far anyway this happens i go back to zambia it changes my whole life everybody calls me gay which in africa is basically something that you could get killed for did you fight a lot No, I didn't have to fight, man. I've actually still never been in a fight. I'm 33. I've never hit a person.
0: That's amazing. I haven't either. Isn't (laughs) that weird? Look
1: at that. I've been hit
0: before. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) I went down when I got hit. It broke my jaw (laughs) three
1: places. Oh man. How about you? No, nobody broke my jaw, but I, I definitely, (laughs) you know, like it happened, and I I just remember picking myself up. I'm like, oh, hold on, what happened?
0: (laughs) So Musonda went back to his parents. In Zambia and he turned to music, both to escape from this and to prove something to his community.
1: And then as a way of escaping, it made me stop playing music. Music, yes. Yeah. It lent me into my whole you know, I wanted to be cool because I wanted to prove that I'm definitely not You're gay. not gay and you're not shameful. So, so guess what in I'm your gonna community. do? yeah. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get some girls. One way to get girls is definitely playing music, right? It is? Oh, yeah. What are you talking about? Oh, man, okay. I'm not sure. You're learning some things tonight. (laughs) Um, Yes, a wise
0: revelation for you as a young man.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was just one of those things that. But it came from a shameful place. It Mm -hmm. came from this experience that had been so painful and an experience that really crushed me in a lot of ways.
0: So he made music and went back to his parents church and a preacher there helped him form a band that played kalindula music that's one of the native musics of zambia and they did so well that they were on tv and they were they played all the best venues and they were in demand at all the local functions
1: But that visibility created a problem. Political regimes changed. One government got out of power, another one comes in. My uncle was part of the old government. My dad had connections in the old government. The new government decides to prosecute the old government for corruption charges.
0: This, this sounds familiar. This, but... <laughs> this is yeah. But this is different in in Zambia than it would be in the US with Trump prosecuting Clinton.
1: Right, because it actually does happen. The person that left the last government will probably go to prison for real or they'll get killed or something. Like it it ain't no just, you know, it's not just rhetoric. It's not just rhetoric. They'll do it.
0: And that's how Musanda ended up in the United States. We need to break here for a minute to let you know that Rome School is a nonprofit 501 501c3. And your contributions will help bring stories to life that you wouldn't hear anywhere else. From a perspective that you won't hear anywhere else either. When you have a minute, go to our website, romeschooled.com. There are pictures there. There's a video that we made of Musanda singing that song. And there's a donate button. We really appreciate your help in making stories accessible both for the teller and for the listener. We'll be right back.
1: When I first moved here it was exciting right because as a young kid most of us the biggest thing we do out there is dream about coming to america every movie you're watching has america attached to it the I mean, influence of america is undeniable so you all you dream about coming to america when i got the chance to do it the first year of it, it was very exciting you know you come in You, you <laughs> i arrived in la at lax and i'm driving down 101 seeing the ocean and stuff like that. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I get to live here. The air smells different. I'm glad I just left Africa. And that was cool. I liked that feeling. And for the first year, it felt great. Then about maybe I would say even just nine months into it, it started to change. How so? First of all, the people treat you differently. And that's what I hated about it. You're from Africa. So people have this genuine intrigue. But then there's also this notion of treating you like almost like you are less than because you're from Africa. Somehow you they think you're behind, you your brain somehow works differently because of the perception that people have of Africa. What's an example of that? Well, you <laughs> people will take you to the mall and buy you clothes and, and they're basically doing it out of pity because they think that you grew up without ever wearing clothes. Huh. And they literally would say that to each other. No, he's never he's never barely had any clothes. It's, it's the idea that you come from a certain culture, and so I'm going to treat you differently. It's one thing to appreciate the culture. It's another thing to have a little power structure in how you see that culture. A hierarchy in your head of like, well, I'm better than he is. Now, I came from a, a place where people appreciated me just for being me. And all of a sudden, I'm like being treated like a zoo animal. I, I played along, man. But in the end, it gets old. And once it gets old, then it starts to get irritating, yep. and then you start wanting to be around people that just look at you and treat you like. Right now, we've been bullshitting about women, girls, mostly. and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, that's just a guy being with a guy chatting, and we're just kicking, it, and it's, and there's nothing attached to it, right? You know, so that's different. You know, like I just I miss that. I I missed the having that when
0: you were in LA. It didn't feel like home because you weren't being treated like the person that no. you thought you
1: were. Exactly. It really made me miss home
0: Mm. a lot. So he moved up to Portland,
1: our hometown. The vibe was a little different. It seemed like people that, you know, maybe it's because it's kind of a liberal bastion, you know, so. Interesting. I liked that.
0: I liked that about it. It's an interesting state. We were one of the only states, though... That That's, has a
1: very racist past. Very racist past. Yeah. yeah. And it still does. Yeah. It, you know. But I think th- there's a pocket of neighborhoods and people that I think have consciously worked to transcend that. Uh-huh. It shows in the way they relate with other people from mm-hmm. different cultures. There's a certain acceptance that you find... I'm not going to say it's felt like home, mm-hmm. but I felt more accepted. But the other aspect of it for me, as far as home is concerned, was moving to the U.S. and having a little bit of success. I worked for a bank for a little while. I worked in the tech field for a little bit. And I made a little bit of money. This is a chunk of money for a young kid. And not really having anybody appreciate the gravity of what I'm achieving. Mm-hmm. There's nobody there that's sitting like, like, I got a Mercedes, bro. Like, There's nobody I grew up with that can see the contrast between the kid sharing shoes and wearing tattered clothes and walking to school and having to fetch water to, you know, this is that kid and now this is the kid there. The contrast is not happening. And that creates a certain type of loneliness, you know, because when you're happy, happiness is shared, man. It's much better when you're sharing with other people. Yeah. And that's what I was going through. And it created a huge thing of being homesick for me. But then also dealing with that annoying. I can't get out of here and go home. It has because never, it was unsafe? Because it wasn't safe for me. And is it still? To a certain extent, yes. And that's you're still homesick? I'm not saying I wanted to start to go live there, because I have my kids here. Right. I've created a life here. Uh, my children are American, and I owe it to them to be here. And then I've gotten attached to some things that are going on here. Needless to say, man, it's been this thing where you're stuck. You can't go home to your native land. And then you also have this place where you live at, where in some cases you don't feel as accepted as you you are. Just the general attitude of America towards black people.
0: And so when you lived in a suburb of Portland, you got pulled over a lot.
1: I got pulled over 13 times in a year and a half. Wow. 13 times in a year and a half and what did they decide that you were doing wrong during those the majority of the time there's nothing i never got cited for anything i just got let go i actually got comfortable getting pulled over to be honest with you you just talk to the person I mean, and- <laughs> why not i mean it seemed like it was a very routine thing that you could pull me over because it happened so many times you do it so many times you're like yeah. and they would say the same thing. i remember one night i got pulled over two times within a 10 minute period I talk to this guy and I get in my car and I drive three, four blocks another guy pulls me over. I'm like, are you guys not talking to each other?
0: (laughs) So the next and most recent chapter in Musonda's life is...
1: Prison. So I end up getting in some trouble, legal trouble with DUI. Um, I've ended up being incarcerated because of it. Um, And then now I'm just trying to kind of move past that mm. of course incarceration comes with its own set of challenges you know you walk out of prison uh you're walking into a society that has pretty much relegated you to the fringes you you have to deal with a lot of estrangements from loved ones regardless of them maybe you're still understanding uh, the social dynamics that sometimes precipitate your imprisonment, there's still an aspect of that. They they still place squarely on your shoulders to say, well, (laughs) you should have known, though.
0: For you, it was 18 months of just not being able to be with your family, not being able to provide for them. And there are certain pragmatisms that must have played into
1: your marriage falling apart. I would say 90% of what's precipitated my marriage falling apart comes from the ripple effects of incarceration. Yeah. These are byproducts of incarceration that have played into how things have turned out for me. Obviously, I want to make sure that I emphasize this. I don't want to say there's no accountability. I chose to yeah. drink and drive. I chose to get behind the wheel of a car when I shouldn't have. Yeah. So that part is mine. I'm but the more- propensity with which I'm going to get looked at For something that I do believe a lot of people do, Mm -hmm. it's a little, you know, I'm under the spotlight a little bit more than other people.
0: So for our friend Musonda, there's an added wrinkle in this search to find home. If you're driving while black, as the expression goes, you're twice as likely to be pulled over.
1: Oh, that's... Shitty? Yeah. Unfair.
0: If you're pulled over, you're three times as likely to be cited for failing to use a vehicle light You're four times as likely to be cited for littering, and you're five times as likely to be cited for possession of a controlled substance. You can see where this goes, and it's not just the police who are the first contact in these situations, it's the entire judicial system. So in this system, our friend Musonda, who was doing pretty well and starting to find a home, in spite of all of the hurdles and obstacles that had been placed in his way, ends up in prison. Did you find some guys in there who felt more at home there than you did?
1: Yes, I thrived in a way just because I have a personality. I think that uh, p- makes people probably feel at ease. A smile goes a long way. It disarms people when you can smile. At people that don't expect you to be smiling at them, they're like, "Well, what's going on here? Is that an idiot or is it a very nice guy?" <laughs> so, you,
0: <laughs> and you can't hate an idiot, right? I mean, okay, so you thrived in some ways, but you found there's some guys you. Were but
1: there's guys there that. Literally, this has become their home. A place that they can function in with such fluidity, you'll be amazed at how good they are at what they do. They value the three hearts and a cot, the three square meals. They value that. And when you talk to them, you can tell they haven't had a lot of social capital. Uh, The story is the same. A lot of times it comes from poverty. Uh You talk to them, you know they come from homes that were broken or homes that didn't have love or in the case of a lot of minorities, homes that had people that were incarcerated, that had been removed from their home, you go there and you find so many people that incarceration has become just kind of a normal thing. It's become a home for them. Mm-hmm. They feel the most comfortable when they're incarcerated than they do outside in the free world. Prison has become home. Confinement has become home, which is kind of incredible to to see. But are you?
0: Halfway home now, and when people get out and they're like you, and they want to be near their family, but they're living in a halfway houses, I feel like you're halfway home, or you get to see them enough that you feel like you're home. You just got to kind of tweak your situation. Now.
1: I think tweaking my situation is, you know, sometimes just having a choice is, is feels more at home. Not having the choice to go back to Zambia, no matter how comfortable I felt here, I still didn't feel like home. Because there was there was an element of freedom that was missing. Mm-hmm. So even right now, getting out of prison, I'm in a halfway house. I don't feel at home per se because I'm still like bound by certain things. I can't live in the same house as my kids right now because I have to live in a halfway home, halfway house. As I'm getting older, one of the bigger things that's come for me is just where my kids are. Now I feel like that's where my home is. If I'm there and I'm hugging my babies, I'm at home. As I've become a father, i realize realized I play a big part in their lives. Yeah. So I've had to change my mind to thinking, listen, where they are is where I should start feeling comfortable
0: I feel like as hard as I've had to fight to find my home, some people have to fight harder. Are you guys comfortable?
1: Yeah.
0: Me too. And lucky, feeling really lucky. So we leave this episode and move on with our roaming. There'll be others this season whom we've encountered who gave us new definition of home, and you'll meet them. Check out our website, Rumschools.com. There you'll see a video of Musanda in the studio and all kinds of other stuff. Thanks for listening to Rumschool.